0: In January, for our inaugural edition of The Odd Years, I sat down with Andy LePerrier, head of U.S. policy at Piper Sandler. The topic, the upcoming congressional session, in particular, options for the debt ceiling and other challenges that Congress and the White House will be facing in the year ahead. I'm Amy Walter, and this is The Odd Years. So, Andy, thanks for being with us
1: thanks for having me. I'm really honored to help pick this series off. So thanks for inviting you
0: me. You are very welcome. and let's start with the thing that folks on Wall Street, you spend a lot of time talking to those folks, as well as people on Capitol Hill are focused on, and that, of course, is the debt ceiling. You wrote this morning in your report about three potential scenarios for a solution to this debt ceiling impasse. I'd love if you could walk us through what those three scenarios are and what you think is the most likely scenario. I realize it's early, but at yep. least give us some understanding of how that would work.
1: Yeah, so I think some people have kind of jumped on the discharge petition as a method of maybe bailing us out and not going to the brink. And I don't think that's very likely for a variety of reasons. It's kind of a cumbersome process that there's delays. And so we walked through that a little bit. I don't really see that. So, you know, I kind of, I think, Either way, the other two main possibilities are, you know, there's some kind of concession or it's a clean debt ceiling increase. And I kind of think either way, though, we're going to go to the 11th hour on this one Mm -hmm. and maybe past the 11th hour in terms of going to a day where the federal government doesn't pay all of its bills. I mean, we're not going to default on the debt. No matter what, I mean, Treasury was prepared to prioritize payments in the past. They'll do that. They're not going to default on bondholders and the social security checks will go out but somebody might not get paid i think that's probably not going to happen i think they'll figure it out but i think we're in worse shape in terms of if you don't want to see a default or technical default because it could have negative ramifications for the economy and for interest rates and for ordinary people but uh i think we're in more shape than in 2011 because back then you had boehner he had a reasonable plan and his caucus was pretty unified behind him so they had a plan that was defensible he didn't want to take us over the cliff but i think this time it's not mccarthy's plan right it's the folks that voted against him you know a lot of people who some of whom have a lot of conviction i think a lot of them don't and they're really just out for themselves but even the ones with conviction have a lot of conviction but they don't necessarily have a plan and that, when i worked on the hill sometimes we viewed ourselves as sort of the anchor in a debate so i i respect people who take that position and try to shift the debate their way. But you don't want to be the eager that prevents the government from being able to pay its bills. That's not necessarily the best.
0: That's right. I mean, one thing you talked about was a compromise, ultimately, from both sides. Your phrase was, it involves some give and take. And I don't know, Andy, give and take doesn't seem to be the kind of thing that either side is interested at this stage of the game. We've heard a lot about the folks who voted against McCarthy, the Freedom Caucus, the sort of rump group of Republicans here. But what about the folks who are in that more mainstream Republican group, the 201 or two who voted for McCarthy in the first place, who they don't want to have this sort of fight about potentially defaulting, do they?
1: I think when it comes to the Republicans on the debt ceiling, I think you've a variety of groups and a variety of views. I think what most Republicans believe is that the country's on an unsustainable trajectory. I mean, debt to GDP is basically where it was at the end of World War II at the highest level in American history. Instead of all these people coming home to, to work and after fighting, we're have a lot fewer workers and these entitlement problems. So I think, you know, we're in a lot worse shape. We're in the worst shape ever in terms of the debt. So i think those concerns are legitimate and so the debt ceiling has historically been used as a way to try to get concessions to deal with debts and deficit so i think most republicans are in favor of using this leverage point but they don't want to go over the cliff at the end of the day and um it's hard to tell what the impact would be maybe it won't be that big a deal but on the other hand it could be really damaging to the credit of the United States. I think even the more moderate Republicans are saying, well, we need something, we need to do something. And so I think to your point, it's gonna be difficult. And this is the reason we think it's going to the brink because most Republicans are unified that we need to do something. Democrats are unified that we're not negotiating on this. And so you have an impasse here that I don't think will be resolved easily. I think there's some Republicans, not that many, who think, well, you know, we could prioritize payments. It's not that big a deal. You've had that in the past. You had that in 2011. So I think, you know, there's probably more of those around now. I mean, we'd have to give it a little bit more time to see. There's a lot of fresh faces and stuff. But I don't think there's that many of them. The problem is that I would break the group up differently than the McCarthy vote. You do have a consensus that something needs to be done and that this is an opportunity to something that changes the trajectory of the deficit and the debt.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I was talking to some folks in the Republican Mainstream Partnership Group, what we think of as sort of the more mainstream of the Republicans, and that was the sentiment I got as well. Which is they're going to be, uh, there's going to be a focus on making some cuts. That this debt issue is serious for all of them. That they do want to see. At the end of the day, they agree with this idea, as you pointed out, that. We're in an unsustainable place. But if you're Democrats, why do you give in? Why don't you just let Republicans look like they're overreaching, call them hypocrites for increasing the debt limit when Trump was there and say this is just political posturing and let Joe Biden look like the person who is being more reasonable?
1: Well, I think they are going to do that. And for the reasons you just said, another reason is if you think about what the Republicans' starting position, to the extent that there really is a position, but I mean, what McCarthy agreed to in terms of funding the government is we're going to go back to fiscal year levels of two years ago. We're going to hold the fence harmless in that and cut domestic discretionary spending 22%. Well, that's just a non starter for Democrats, right? I mean, so it's not just you know, you want concessions, but the concession that Republicans are looking for to Democrats is just completely outrageous. Only spending and only on the domestic discretionary side. So no defense cuts and no no taxes. So, you know, that's from their point of view, that is not a balanced approach to tackling the debt and the deficit. And there's no way they're going to go Along with that. So again, this just goes back to the point we're stressing is they're really far apart uh, here. Yeah. Democrats are like, I'm not going to negotiate. And your negotiating starting position is complete non-starter.
0: Can you help us understand where the Senate comes into play here? We know that Mitch McConnell has been through a number of these over the years. And he's looking right now at a pretty good map in 2024 for his party, and yet he also came off of a pretty dismal 2022, right? He knows the impact that these kinds of events can have on the fortunes of his party taking back control of the Senate. So how does he fit into all of this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think McConnell is going to be in that kind of the mainstream Republican position, which is we do need to do something about this. As a policy matter, our voters want us to do something about it, but we have to be realistic about what a deal could look like, what could be achieved. And it is going to have to be a compromise. Obviously, whatever gets done is going to have to have broad support from Democrats, Republicans, and President Biden. So I think, I guess the big contrast I would say between McConnell and say the Freedom Caucus is just more realistic about what's achievable. And also at the end of the day, McConnell believes in governing. You know, we used to have an expletive we used on the hill about having to eat a certain kind of sandwich when certain compromises came through. And I think, you know, McConnell has eaten a lot of those sandwiches and Freedom Caucus people just think, well, I'm not, I'm not eating that. Especially when many of them, their whole MO is I'm the real deal. All these other guys are sellouts. That's their political identity. And no, they don't vote for compromises.
0: Although you did lay out a scenario where both sides, they compromise, but they get to save face, right? So it's nothing that's really substantive, this idea of 22% cut to discretionary spending, something like that. But it sort of sets a stage, theoretically, for Republicans to say, see, we got Democrats to agree that we're spending too much. Democrats say, see, we prevented... Republicans from gutting these important programs. Can you talk about that?
1: The twenty-two percent is if you just do the math of Republicans going back to two years ago, keeping defense flat, and what what that what that means for. And there's different ways of calculating that depending on the assumptions you want to use. But but I think I think that is actually the I think it's the Republican position that the Freedom Caucus and the holdouts forced upon the rest of the conference. Mm. And so this goes back to what I say. I I think the problem is they don't have, I don't think they, they don't, they they didn't sit down. Boehner said, okay, he gave that speech in New York to the New York Economic Club and said, hey, for every dollar, we're going to increase the debt ceiling. We're going to reduce the deficit a dollar. And he had the super committee, which was the, you know, and then the enforcement mechanism for that was the sequester. But I mean, that was, that was a plan. And, and that kind of made sense. And ultimately that is what they did. This time it's pick a number, it's not, not totally out of thin air, but, and that's what we want. And to get the votes for speaker, you know, you want my vote for speaker, you have to embrace that budget objective. So I don't, I feel like they backed into a position. I, I think you're right though. At the end of the day, you know, a lot of Republicans could, could say, well, you know, sure we pushed for this, but we, and we got something less, of course, because it's compromise and he's in the White House. And but I don't I don't think it's yeah, I don't think that the Republican position is sort of a well thought out negotiating strategy. Right. I think it's right. and that's I think that's one of the dangers here is that it, it it's it's how does this is what the rump group, the rebels demanded to get their vote and that's now that's the Republican position.
0: Yep. Yeah, that's a very that's an excellent point. So let's then let's transition from that to the person on the hot seat who did sort of back into this, which is Kevin McCarthy. And he's now sometimes referred to as a not a rhino, but a sino speaker in name only that he doesn't have much power. A lot of it he had to give away to get his speakership. But also that He's not going to be around in that job for very long. It's just an impossible job. And the the motion to vacate the chair now with only one vote required is going to put him on thin ice constantly. Do you do you agree with this, that he's only in this job? Maybe for this term, maybe doesn't even make it to that. Through that? I don't
1: know. It's hard to tell. I mean, I'd say I think one thing that's worth mentioning here and, you know, uh, like people all, that I interact with a lot on Wall Street, I mean that their view of Kevin McCarthy is really, really low. It's going to be pretty easy for him to exceed expectations. But I think when we step back and say, you know, a couple of weeks ago, when we were in the thick of this, a lot of people said, look, there's no way he's going to get the votes. Right. He's not going to be able to do this. And I think if you can say one thing about Kevin McCarthy, it's he knows his members. He knows where they are. Sure, he's not a policy wonk, but you know, what in a season where not a, a lot of stuff is going to get done anyway, you know, this being a policy wonk would that really bring a lot to the table here? I mean, if anybody could be a survivor and navigate this just in the same way that he navigated what we saw the first week of January, you know, it might be him. And so, I, you know, in terms of like him having power or the Freedom Caucus having power, I think that the None of them at one level have a lot of power because you have a thin majority. Democrats have a thin majority in the Senate. Biden's president. I mean, anything that's going to get done, like I said a minute ago, is going to have to have broad bipartisan support. So obviously, it can be very disruptive to just say, this is our position, Kevin, and we're standing here. And there's, you know, well, I mean, that position isn't going to become law no matter what. And, uh, and so, I mean, I think the real question is, I mean, the other thing that's worth mentioning here is, and it's tricky because, you know, it could be only five people on the Republican side that, that vote them out. If all the Democrats vote the same way, but the vast majority of the, of the Republican conference is not happy that they had to go through that, that a handful of people were driving the bus and they don't want that, that group to drive the bus off a cliff for republicans either and to your point about you know they had a bad 2022 they had bad candidates to you know uh, on a variety of things but mostly in terms of respecting the outcome of an election they were way out of touch with where the voters were and you know they don't want to lose again and they don't want to have a train wreck that a handful of them bring about so it's a very tricky situation because at one level i don't think it really you know I, like for example I don't see how they're going to have the votes to pass the budget they're in favor of even on a party line vote. I mean, I, there's plenty of re- Republican defense hawks who aren't going to vote for a flat defense bill. I think there's plenty of Republicans who aren't going to vote for a 22% cut to domestic spending. So, I I will be very surprised if Republicans are able to pass that through the house.
0: Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And right, we we have to remember there are, you know, 18 Republicans who sit in districts that Biden carried, right? And they have a five-seat majority. So if you're one of those 18, many of them are freshmen. You're looking around the corner to 2024 and saying, can I defend this vote or can I defend this position in my upcoming election? And McCarthy has the reality in front of him. If those folks all lose, he's not speaker anyway because (laughs) Democrats will have taken control of the house. Yeah.
1: One thing that I'm sure you remember from your time and I remember from the same time, which is, you know, it's one thing to walk the plank when it when it could get done like on healthcare you know democrats walked the plank 2009 and some of them knew they were putting their careers at risk but it's another thing to walk the plank take the tough vote when ultimately it isn't going to happen right That's
0: right you're getting nothing from this it's not going to pass it's- congress the president's not going to sign it this is just a show vote
1: So if you're in a marginal district you know wait yeah. a minute why am i I mean Okay, fine, you're going to make me take that tough vote. I'm taking the easy vote. I'm going to take the political vote. It's a no vote. So so I think it's uh, you're not going to have it's going to be tough to to round up the votes for positions that have no chance of prevailing that are really controversial.
0: So then let's let's zoom out for a second. I mean, based on everything that you just put forward, the reality for Republicans just getting stuff through with their members getting to 218. Just with Republicans is hard. So does this suggest that the next two years, really, it's just going to be gridlock and investigations and maybe some chaos as we're watching, you know, for example, what's going to happen with George Santos and the drama around that? Or are there a couple of things where we could say, you know what, or you could say, we might see a bipartisan bill out of this. There's something that could pass the House, the Senate and get Biden to sign.
1: We could have two years of rolling CRs and never pass the budget. And I think that is a real possibility, but I don't think it's the base case. And so I think the base case is there's going to be a budget package in December, give or take, that, you know, that will fund the government. And I think defense will go up modestly. Domestic will go up less. And there there there's probably going to be a few things in there that Biden wants and Democrats want and Republicans want. And so maybe there'll be an energy permitting bill that, It has a little more teeth than the mansion one. I don't think it's going to be a barn burner of a piece of legislation, but it it could be incrementally a little easier to build pipelines and transmission that could also, you know, could affect uh, green energy as well, because that's an issue for for green energy. That's the windmills and the solar panels aren't necessarily where the energy is consumed. So you could see bipartisan support for something like that. I mean, you, there's a bunch of other issues out there. I mean, there are the, a bunch of tax increases happen on in the corporate side, and, you know, last year and this year, from R and D to expensing. So, you know, maybe there's probably not. I'm guessing, but maybe something on that. I mean, there's so much things that are of somewhat less interest to investors, so I don't follow them as closely. But I, you know, I think there's probably something's going to have to be agreed to on the border as part of the bill funding the government one way or the other, right? Either you're going to just yep. keep the status quo or not. That's going to be a brawl. Maybe there is a compromise there that's incremental that I think it would be focused on border security, not anything broader than that. I think the Safe Banking Act is definitely less than 50-50. I'm kind of skeptical of that related to cannabis. This is
0: the cannabis legislation. Yeah. yeah, Yeah, but
1: that's in the mix. So there'll be some other things, but I think uh, I agree generally with your characterization. Yeah, not a lot's going to get done. But in every two year cycle, there's always some things that get done. But the setup here is definitely between divided government, lack of trust, polarization, the fiscal constraints that help provide the backdrop for what we we're just talking about, the fact that a lot of Republicans don't like their own leaders. So that's why McCarthy's has all this trouble. It gives them less running room to make deals. You know, so there's, Uh, All this backdrop definitely is not conducive uh, to getting a lot done. The 2024 campaign is basically already underway. We have a major candidate already in the race. That's going to really heat up in the next six months. So you you just look at it all and it's bare bones, most likely.
0: Most likely bare bones. Although it does seem when it comes to, and I realize this is in the foreign policy realm, but it also relates to domestic policy and the economy, which is, Unified support, or at least bipartisan support for keeping things like tariffs on China, a continued support for funding Ukraine and their push against Russia. Do you see that any of those things are under threat? We've been hearing some voices from some of the new Republican members in the Senate about, you know, questioning any more funding for Ukraine.
1: Yeah. So I think when I try to think about what can get done, I think, okay, well, where are the areas where there's common ground, where there's potential bipartisan compromise? I think on the domestic area, you're hard pressed to name them, but you've identified, I think, the two issues that stand out where there is consensus on the two sides. And that is our approach to China and our approach to Ukraine. So it's not unanimous, but I think there's a broad consensus to do really in terms of the Ukraine situation, it's really two things impose sanctions on Russia that hopefully drive its economy into the stone ages so that it's less capable of waging war against Ukraine or anybody else. And two, supporting Ukraine significantly militarily. And I think even though there's been some loud voices on the Republican side against that, the vast majority of Republicans today, and I think a year from now or six months from now, when they're talking about it again, I think will be in favor of that. And then on china i think you've got three policy goals that we've backed into over the last few years on which there's broad support keep the tariffs limit chinese access to the most sophisticated u.s technology and three try to reduce our dependence on china and keep the tariffs that simple through legislation and some regulatory changes tightening the noose around what china can get its hands on in terms of technology the third part's a little tricky the chip spill was a rifle shot on that when you think about well what would be next and how would you do it i think it gets really tricky but it is happening where you know chinese exports or chinese imports the share of all u.s imports are going down and they haven't recovered to pre-covid levels where rest of the world imports to the u.s have, are above pre-covid levels so there is a shift that's taking place that's happening but it's. I think it's going to happen pretty slowly. I mean, conceptually, there's an agreement. But when you get down to the nitty gritty, it's hard to figure out how you would actually do that in practice.
0: That's right. That's right. Good point. So we're going to go maybe a little more existential right now. <laughs> and just to think, I mean, you have been within sort of the front row watching both parties transform. But obviously, you started your career on the Republican side. We spend a lot of time now watching as the Republicans now in charge, at least on the House side. How do you describe the party to your clients Like, ha, ha, and and tell us where you think the transformation has been most acute? We talk in big picture way about this sort of new populist strain within the Republican party, but is there something else? Is there is there a way in which you... As I said, tell your clients and when you're talking to Wall Street folks who, have, again, 30 years ago would have said, well, Republicans, they're our friends. They're on the free market side. They're on the pro-business side. Now they're coming out and talking about woke corporations and taking it to some of the biggest names in business.
1: Yeah. I have maybe a three-party answer. this a, It's a very it's it's great just, it's good. It's a good question, a broad question. But I think, you know, the Republican Party is still the party of limited government. Their coalition is in favor of limited government. Grover Norquist used to call it the Leave Us Alone Coalition of gun owners and small business people. And so I think that's still largely true. And so that that has not changed that much. I think the Trump effect is less a policy effect than kind of an attitude. And I think it's what makes the people who really like Trump get fired up, but also motivates his opponents, which he's a fighter. He wants to own the libs. That kind of posture uh is obviously inherently divisive. If you like that, you like that. If you don't, you don't. But I think that when you think about these Trumpy candidates, besides not accepting the results of the last election, I mean, that's kind of the characteristic that I think stands out as opposed to, you know, there are some policy shifts at the margin on trade and immigration, but not that big. I think on the last piece, though, there is a a huge shift that's taking place. And it's partly because... The cultural differences are what defines who is a Republican and a Democrat. That's right, that's right. I mean, it's been that way for a long time, as you know, but it's more so now. And I think companies have jumped in to the fray uh, unwisely, in my opinion. I think the, the best example is like when Citigroup says, if you get an abortion as an employee of Citigroup, you can submit for reimbursement, we'll pay for your travel expenses. Well, I don't think very many employees are actually going to do that. So it's not a real thing. It's just, we want to make a statement as a company or as the leaders of the company that were on the pro-choice side of the abortion debate, And a lot of Republican voters and members of Congress see that as well. You've picked the team that you're on and you're telling us you're not on our team. So that's fine. I'll treat you like you're on their team. (laughs) And I think there's a huge blowback that is coming in. I think you see it in a lot of ways. I mean, with these tax increases that have taken effect, On businesses, it's just a lower priority for Republicans to fix that.
0: That's what I was going to ask you. It's not simply that they want to bring these executives up to yell at them about wokeism. What you're saying is even more substantive than that, which is, you know what? We're not just giving lip service, right, to say we we disagree, but then turn around and give them a tax cut. What you're saying is, oh, we're going to really, truly pick winners and losers now.
1: I mean, when I worked, I worked on tax reform when I was on the Hill and this was out like very front and center for me personally has done the, the issues I worked on. And I personally believe in pro-growth tax policies, but pro-growth tax policies are sort of pro-investment, pro-entrepreneurship, pro-labor too. But, you know, a, a disproportion of the benefits go to people who pay a lot of taxes. If you look at it on kind of a static model. So anything you're going to do that's going to promote investment is going to be seen in some distribution table as benefiting, you know the top half of the income spectrum. And so if you're a Republican, you're like, hey man, I'm always just taking these arrows for you. I'm not sure I'm as excited to take the arrows for you when you know, you're know you on the other team. Now, granted, you still believe at the end of the day that pro-investment's good for the economy and it's how wages go higher is when there's more productivity and all that. So you're not gonna like throw that out the window, but you know, if I'm setting my priorities, how important is it for me to repeal the the pharmaceutical provisions that will raise prices on senior citizens, increase the deficit, that's not a very attractive political option and it's not as high a priority. And so Republicans are rethinking a lot of things. I mean, the new chairman of the Ways and Means Committee said, you know, companies that are in bed with China and kind of don't, I forgot the exact words to use, but don't have a sense of kind of patriotism or whatever. We're gonna look at how we're treating those kinds of companies and their investment choices and where they're doing their investing so i I think it's a it's a lot of these things together and esg is at the center of this i mean the banking committee put out this report a few weeks ago saying hey by the way all you big asset managers that are you know you're in theory passive investors but you're actually using wielding the influence you have as major shareholders through your through etfs and index funds to try to get companies to behave differently so you're actually not a passive investor you're an active investor Turns out there's all kinds of laws that should apply to you and regulations that haven't been applied to you. Well, maybe they should be. And actually, if you're a major shareholder of a bank holding company and you're trying to what those what banks do, you actually become a bank holding company if you own a certain amount. And you know what that kind of regulation looks like? <laughs> yeah,
0: that <laughs> is a lot. Uh-huh. Now, the administration has some say in that too, right? Because this is- but I-
1: but I, but I think you're seeing would the next Republican administration, I see. they, uh, uh, well, we're going to treat you like you're an active investor, not a passive investor. And these rules apply to you. I think they might. So I think it's the waterfront from changing priorities to tax policy, to how companies are regulated and, and treated. Uh, so I think, I think it's underappreciated the extent to which Republicans are ready to whack woke corporations.
0: I'm going to ask you one more question and then allow our folks who are in the audience to ask some questions. You can just put things in. All right. So, Andy, you work in the financial sector. So two questions for you. The first is, seems like there's a consensus in that space that we're headed for some sort of recession just as a question of how deep or how hard the landing is, et cetera. I want you to comment on that. And then the second is, you know, if you tell me again in the olden days, well, the party in charge is running for reelection at a time when we're either in the middle of or coming out of recession, that would seem to put that party at a disadvantage. And yet I think about the last three elections where the economy was a factor and yet it didn't really help Republicans that much. Right. In 2012. Obama wins re-election despite the fact that he's underwater on approval ratings of the economy. In 2018, Trump has positive approval ratings on the economy. The economy's doing really well and his party gets crushed. And then in 2022, we have high inflation. The you know, right direction wrong track is at some of its worst numbers in years and years and years and Democrats hold on and even gain in the Senate. So Tell me what you think is going on here, that the economy, which used to be the kind of thing that the out party and specifically the Republican Party could benefit from, and it doesn't seem to be as as beneficial, let's say, this yeah, in this day and age.
1: I agree with you. I don't think it's as potent an issue. I think you know, a lot of people in, on Wall Street are economic determinists because that's their view of the world. But I think, as we were saying, a lot of what's driving how people vote is the social issues. And there's fewer swing voters. I think the economy matters the most to the swing voters. And of course, it still matters. It's still important. It sets the tone. But even going back to 2016, how much of the Trump phenomena was the forgotten kind of middle class, working class, rebelling over economic issues versus more the social issues? And I would say it was the social issues. There's a sense that the elite's Look down on them and that kind of thing that drove it more than their sort of narrow pocketbook stuff. So I think it's become less important. There's uh, particularly because there's just fewer swing voters. It's not the ground that's mostly fought on. Obviously, during a campaign, you're going to hear mostly the things that matter to swing voters because you're trying to appeal to them. At the end, Uh, anyway, yeah, I would say you know there's a big debate about whether we can achieve a soft landing or a hard landing, skirt a recession or not. The economist that works at our firm that I work with she believes that the odds are high that we are going to have a recession just how long and deep it will be hard to tell you know she's more in the shallow to normal kind of recession rather mm-hmm. than a deep protracted but those kinds of recessions to bounce back normally isn't great either so i mean the timing's pretty bad for Democrats, if we do get her, her forecast is for the second half of this year, we get the recession. So the unemployment rate and that kind of scenario is probably rising throughout most, if not all of 2024. So that even when the, if the recession is over in 2024, it won't feel that way because the employment market lags GDP. So I think that's a bad setup. And when you combine it with inflation in the beginning and real wages being depressed and then you add unemployment to that, it's going to mean, you know, your median household income, average household income will really take a hit in the four years of the Biden presidency. So I think it's going to have a really challenging economic record to defend. And the other piece of it is it's not hard to tie at least part of the inflation problem to Biden's policies, right? So whereas a lot of times it's really not the president who created the recession it right. just happens because it happened. There's other factors, but typically that are not. uh, Obviously, presidents could completely control the economy. We'd never have a recession in near an election. So but I think in Biden's case, he's going to own it more than average.
0: Andy, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. We covered a lot of ground, a lot of territory here with Andy, who, as usual, shows us an incredible command of his area of expertise. Thank you, Andy. And we look forward to seeing all of you again very soon with episode two of The Odd Years. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with me and Andy. Make sure to follow us for more of these conversations in the year ahead. The Odd Years is brought to you by the Cook Political Report.